0: Independence Day, as we celebrate another year of the freedom that we're so blessed to enjoy. And uh, today we're going to be continuing our series in Daniel. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up or open up your app, whatever you do there for the Bible, to go to Daniel chapter 11. And as we're in this today, this is a, it's a very different kind of chapter. In fact, several uh, Writers and people I read actually suggest that you don't preach this chapter because it's so technical. But believing me, believing in the uh, the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, I believe that all Scripture should be preached. Amen. So we're going to go through it. But this is a tough chapter. In this chapter alone, there are 135 prophecies that have already been fulfilled before we even get toward the end of the chapter. That's a lot of prophecies for us to talk about. So obviously, we're not gonna get into the weeds on every single one of them. But as we go to this, we're looking at Daniel who's uh, in his upper 80s. He uh, was captured out of his home city of Jerusalem as a teenager, forced to go with a foreign king named Nebuchadnezzar into a foreign country called Babylon where he was tried to force to become a good Babylonian. And so he was immersed into an anti-God culture. And so what he and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had to do was to learn how to navigate what is it like when you're trying to follow the one true God and be true to him, be uncompromising in your faith and your devotion to God, But you're all of a sudden in the midst of a culture that is anti-God and where there are drastic penalties and consequences if you try to stay devoted to the one true God. And so he navigated this along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for, for decades. And so it's a very good example for all of us as we find ourselves in a culture that's not anti-God yet, but it's actually moving in a direction that should the Lord not do something, we're going to continue down a path of being an anti-God culture here in our culture. So what do we learn from Daniel? So we've, we've looked at, you know, 10 chapters already. We've learned a lot, hopefully. I have. Um, but now as we get to Daniel chapter 11, this is... we. Daniel 10, 11, 12, really all go together. We began last week looking at this angel, uh, we believe to be Gabriel, shows up to Dan to reveal one last vision. And we're gonna be looking at some of these visions prior to this, but getting a a kind of a concept of what's going on. But this final vision, God is reminding Daniel and showing Daniel what's gonna happen. So that Daniel maintains hope, he maintains resolve to continue to persevere In a life when you have to go against the grain. Now, let's just be honest. How many of us really enjoy going against the grain? We don't, do we? Yeah, we we don't. How many of us like to go against peer pressure? We don't, it's no fun. You know, how many of us enjoy standing for values when everyone around us, including our friends, want us to go with them, and if we're honest, we kind of want to, our flesh wants to go with them, but if we're truly born again, we're childs of the king, children of the king, you know, then we know we're called, and the spirit within us wants to obey the king, and we want to stand firm and resolute. And so thus we have this struggle. None of us want to go against the grain. I'm sure Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not want to go against the grain. We want everybody to like us, most of us. How many of you, there are probably a few of you, how many of you you don't care what people think? You don't care if people like you or not? Shocking. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, there's very few of us that have that that gift, I would call that a gift, but there are few, very few that have that. Most of us, we really care about what people think. We want to be liked. We want to have friends. We want to be seen as loving and kind and all those sort of things. Well, it's really hard. So we're in this, in this chapter today, Daniel chapter 11. And um, if you have your, your notes and your app open, the big thought we're going to look at is that the only people guaranteed a future are God's people. Everything else Nothing else lasts, right? Scripture says so many times, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But what lasts forever? The word of God lasts forever. The word of God and those whom God saves as part of his kingdom will last and thrive forever. So this chapter of Daniel chapter 11, again, is part of this bigger, singular unit of Daniel 10 through 12, a vision given to Daniel in the third year of this guy named Cyrus, it was a time when the Jewish people began to look at last week, they began to return to rebuild Jerusalem. But Daniel was too old, he couldn't go, and we, again, we unpacked a lot of that last week. But now, faced with great opposition from other enemies, the God's people were having trouble rebuilding their city, rebuilding the, the, the temple and the walls and the palace. And so they were fo, fo, kind of forced to go into kind of a maintenance lifestyle, focused on just surviving And so the glorious optimism that was present immediately after they returned had begun to fade into a general attitude of discouragement and despair. So Daniel set apart three weeks to pray and to fast. And at the end of that time is when Gabriel, the angel, comes to him and answers that prayer. So we're going to begin to look at Daniel 11. Chuck Swindoll pretty popular preacher he said that Daniel 11 is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire bible another writer named don campbell he says in the first 35 verses of Daniel 11 there are over 135 prophecies that have been literally fulfilled that can be corroborated through a historical study of the period now as we as we look at this just just kind of to recap previous visions Daniel has had. It's kind of put this whole thing together. Because just today and next week, and we're, we're done with Daniel. So we got to kind of begin summarizing. So in Daniel chapter 2, we saw that Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms. And those kingdoms would literally be fulfilled by the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And it was then during that Roman kingdom that we saw this small stone breaks apart the other four kingdoms. And that's a reference to the Messianic kingdom. Chapter 5, Daniel witnesses that first transfer from the Babylonian to the Medo Persian Empire when Belshazzar is overthrown. We read, we read that in Daniel 5. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision of four beasts representing the same four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greeks, and Romans. Daniel sees the Son of Man ascending into heaven and giving glory and dominion, and it's during that fourth kingdom that the saints receive the kingdom and possess it forever, shadowing of Jesus coming, the Messiah. Chapter eight, Daniel is given a vision of the transfer from the second to the third kingdom presented by the ram and the goat. I think Pastor Brian Davidson walked you through that a few weeks ago. Then Daniel chapter nine, Daniel is told that there will be 70 weeks or 490 years decreed for the people in the city, Messiah will come, and six promises will be accomplished. And now we're in Daniel 11, where we see the transfer from the second to third kingdom again, and we're we'll also possibly see the fourth as well. So we're not going to read this whole chapter because it would take us a long time. We're all going to start, so we're going to start by reading verses one through four, just to give you a taste of what we're going to talk about. So let's all stand and honor the reading of God's word. So I think as we go through this, although the prophecies are very specific to the land of Israel and the kingdoms that we're occupying there, there's also a lot of applications we're going to see for us and for future. So let's read Daniel 11, 1. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now that was Gabriel still talking from the previous chapter. Verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall rise, who will rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up And go to others besides these. We're going to stop there for now. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this powerful, interesting, yet very detailed and complicated passage, God, I just pray you would just, in your grace, give us understanding. And Lord, I just pray that several things would happen in our hearts and minds this morning. One, that we would increase in our appreciation and value of the word of God, Lord, to see how accurately you predicted through the angel to Daniel the exact things that would happen and have happened. So Lord, increase our appreciation, our regard, our trust in your word. God, I pray you would also increase our confidence in how you hold the future in your hands. You're sovereign and almighty no matter how bad things may be or may get. Lord, you are still and always forevermore on the throne, and you rule, and you reign, and God, all things happen in accordance to your decree to make us more like Christ, and so that the nations would hear of Jesus, and so God, I just pray finally that we would all be humbled, be reminded of how mighty, and powerful, and majestic you are, and God, how in comparison, we are nothing apart from you. We need you. We are desperate for you. None of us have it all together. None of us are in control. None of us even shape and determine our own destiny. But God, we are at your mercy. So God, give us that humility we need to be true, genuine worshipers and servants of you in your kingdom. So God, to you be the glory. Be honored in your time together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So, Gabriel starts off in this unpacking what this vision is by showing Daniel that there's still four more kings to go just in the Persian Empire. And so, what we're going to see as we go through this, and this kind of is a number one here in your notes, is there's, there's no short season of hard times, right? You may think you're through one season only to, for another season to come. Anybody ever noticed that? You know, you get, you get past one trial, you're like, woo, we can coast now. All of a sudden, another trial happens. It just seems like that. I mean, life is hard. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. You're married to a fallen person, shocking. You have kids who are fallen. Your parents are and were fallen. I mean, we're all fallen. We're all sinful. We all are, you know, not, we don't just, we're not just good people who mess up, right? We're sinners. That's the, the story of scripture. And so life is hard because of all of these things. And so, we see that there's no short season of hard times. Daniel, thinking his people are finally getting to go back. Maybe it's finally going to end. And God's saying, not yet. Not yet. There's going to be some more seasons of hard times. It's just four more kings just in this Persian empire. And so, we see here, A, that the Persian dominance would continue. You know, four other kings, we know that history, here it says that, um, that Cyrus was king. Well, after him would come a guy named um, Cambyses from 530 to 522 B.C. Then we would have Smyrdia. Aren't you glad you don't have these names? You know, Smyrdia. I wouldn't even name my dog that. That's just bad. Third is Darius I of Hystopsis, a new dynasty, comes in 522 to 46 B.C. And then finally, probably one of the most popular ones, and that's Xerxes, or also called Ahasuerus. He's actually the king in the book of Esther. So if you read the Old Testament book of Esther, who is a Jewish lady uh, who was selected to be the new queen, her husband is Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Also, if you're familiar with the story from the movie 300, the Battle of Thermopylae, that is Xerxes the first. So that's where all the history is coming together here. So those are the four kings that would reign, and Xerxes would be really wealthy and probably the most the most powerful of the Persian kings. There's a, a rendering of him. And so he would he would rule, and he was far more wealthier. he would stir up Greece, it says here in the prophecy. Xerxes led military campaigns against the Greeks, trying to further expand the Persian borders and After the Battle of Thermopylae, which if you 've read or watched the movie, um, they, law, they they won, but it, they won in an embarrassing manner because you had thousands of Greeks through th- against three I mean thousands of Persians against three hundred Greeks, specifically Spartans. And those 300, kind of like the old Alamo, right? Anybody know the story of the Alamo in American history? You know, we just had a, a little over 100 uh, guys there against the, in the war with Mexico, and they held off Santa Ana and thousands for many days. It was shocking. Well, Alamo wasn't the first time that happened. You know, the Battle of Thermopylae was one of those. 300 Spartans held off against thousands of Greeks. And finally, the Greeks won, but it was an embarrassing win. Well, after that, that led to the humiliating defeat at the Battle of Salamis on September of 480 BC when another outnumbered Greek naval fleet was uh, soundly defeated Xerxes and the Persians. And so we see those hard times continue as the Greeks would then take over, which is coming up next. So we see letter B, the God's people would see a second change of empire with Alexander the Great. So all this is being fulfilled exactly like Gabriel shows him. Because you at verse three, he says, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds. Just want to show you the specificity of scripture here. So according to history, we meet this guy named Alexander the Great. And he... Uh, In about 331 B.C., he had conquered most of the known part of the world. In 334, he had invaded Persia and completed its occupation in 331 B.C. with taking of the city of Babylon. And interestingly, he later dies in Babylon in the castle that Nebuchadnezzar built. So it's all kind of, all woven together. But he would bring the Greek empire into the land of Israel to rule. And we see that God's people would see this third empire, the Greeks, war with itself for decades. So just like the passage says here in Daniel 11.3, that when this great king arise soon his kingdom would be broken and divided and go to the four winds. Well, we see that Alexander did not name an heir when he died suddenly. So his kingdom was divided up among his four generals in 322 BC. And here's the four generals. You have Ptolemy, He took over what was called Egypt in the south. You had Seleucid, who took over Syria in the north. Then you had Cassander, who took over Macedonia, and then Lysimachus, who took over Asia Minor. Four wins. Now, if you're reading the scripture and you're saying, "Okay, yeah, well, it's it's kind of convenient that you know in all of these prophecies, it's very literally fulfilled." Probably the writers of Daniel 11, Daniel wrote this, maybe Daniel didn't write this, maybe this was written after all this happened. And that was kind of a popular belief among liberal scholars, because you look at the level of detail that these prophecies give us, and then you look at the literal nature in which they were fulfilled, you're like, wow, either God's incredible, and he really told us all of this, thank you, Steve, before all this happened, or somebody's gone back after the fact and wrote it to make it look like these were accurate prophecies, right? Well, here's what's amazing. In 1948, there was a big discovery that happened around the Dead Sea where all of these scrolls, over 2,000 scrolls were discovered in caves of the Qumran community called the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yep, fascinating. Every book in the Bible was found except for Nehemiah and Esther. The rest of the Old Testament books were found in these ancient scrolls which were dated way back in the BC era. Meaning these scrolls were copies of copies that had existed for centuries when they were found I mean when they were placed right? And it shows that this truly was written before these events took place. So it, it archaeologically corroborated the fact that Gabriel did indeed give Daniel these details before the actual events took place, which means it was truly God-given details of what was about to transpire to Daniel authentically. Amen? So that should encourage us to know that God really did give this information, which means God really does know what's going to happen, which means God really is in control of what's going to happen, which should give us a lot of confidence in the word of God, and in the power and the goodness of God. Amen? Powerful stuff. So we're just seeing these just really take place in the most natural, normal, common way of fulfilling these prophecies. So these four guys, the four winds, four generals take over. And as we're going to see, the rest of this chapter really focuses on number one and two. Ptolemy and Seleucids would struggle, battle over the land of Israel. And so, Gabriel's given all this prophecy to Daniel because it involves Daniel's people. It involves God's people. It involves the land, the, the promised land, Israel. Um, and so that's why Cassandra and Lasamachus are not any, they're not really further in this conversation, because they never occupy Israel. So the rest of between here and verse 35 is going to go a lot of detail about the decades that would, of struggle that would happen between these two generals. They become enemies. Their descendants are enemies. We're going to go through a lot of that quickly. So he had these two, these two powers are back and forth. But for all their best efforts and the vast expenditure of lives and wealth, neither one of these superpowers is able to conquer the other. Generation upon generation upon generation fight and aren't able to um, really nail this down. So, verse six tells us of Ptolemy II, of Philadelphus of the south, giving his daughter, Berenice, to marry King Antiochus II, of Theos of the north, and it backfired. Just all this political maneuvering would try to happen, and all these prophecies are just so detailed. So, one of these, um, one writer says this, "As these prophecies give us a profound perspective on history. He says, it's the continual story of wars, as one human ruler after another seeks power by cunning, alliances, and force. Yet in all the strife and posturing and back and forth, ultimately it accomplished nothing. The balance of powers of politics may shift, but it never comes to rest. We've kind of seen that in our lifetime here in America, haven't we? There are seasons, you know, when it seems like the conservatives and Republicans get some momentum. And then there are seasons where the more liberal and Democrats get some momentum. But it's just kind of a back and forth. You notice that in your lifetime? Anybody, yes? No? Yeah, it's kind of back and forth, right? Um, and that kind of happens. and That's kind of what he's talking about. But he goes, Daniel 11 shows us that the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all of their toil? You ask the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, this is too is vanity. In the big scheme of things, politics ultimately will bring No lasting solutions. Only God and his kingdom does. Only the gospel does. Now, does that mean we just give up? No, absolutely not. We represent. We get in there and we fight for what the scriptures teach us. We hold up to biblical values. You know, we're part of God's bringing his kingdom to earth. It's like Jesus prays that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're to be engaged. We're to be participant. We're We're to vote. We're to, you know, lobby. We're to get involved on Biblical values, but also understand that our ultimate answer is not the political arena. That's what these guys would learn the hard way. That's what God is showing Daniel. There's going to be strife over Israel between the north and between the south. There's going to be back and forth, back and forth. There's going to be some not so bad seasons. There's going to be some horrible seasons. But the answer is still yet to come. That's what he's telling them. and That's what he, we are reminded of. As our culture gets more and more in an anti God direction, our ultimate answer is the gospel. The ultimate answer is king jesus, and so we 've got to just keep our eyes fixed on that. Well, letter d, the importance of daniel and god 's people then so what is what does all this matter? We go all the way through verse thirty five talking about these different generations of kings who fight each other and you know, the, the politics would sway and the dominant nation would, would change from the south to the north, back to the south again. And so what, what's, what's God telling Daniel for the benefit of his people? He's telling them, first, that God's people here, they weren't watching from the sidelines. They, weren't, they did not have the, the benefit of just being spectators. They were caught in the middle, right? Some would seek to take one side or the other without success. Others were indirectly affected as forces of one side or others swept through Judea. The, the glorious land is what um, the angel refers to Israel as here, the glorious land, leaving a trail of destruction in their wake. And so they weren't just bystanders. They were caught up in this. We too are caught up in our cultural struggle. It affects us. I mean just just talk to parents of, of teenagers and kids right now, just how strong the cultural draw is, you know, the, the strong, the pull of the world to, to adopt different worldviews that are not biblical worldviews. I was just talking with Pastor Martin this week and some other guys. Is, the cultural pull was strong when I was a teenager, but it's I, not like it is today, you know, because it just, it's just different. Now we need to be praying for our teenagers, we need to be praying for our parents. Because the world, the pull of the enemy is strong, right? But we also know God is greater. But we've got to plead with the Lord for our kids and grandkids, great-grandkids. Because we're affected by this. We're in the middle of this. We're not just on the sidelines watching this happen. Just like ancient Israel wasn't. They were in this The policies adopted by the North Kingdom affected them. Then the South Kingdom had affected them. And they were just in the middle of this constant tug of war. And these weren't just a temporary hiccup to their plans, but this would be an ongoing feature to life in this world. But God was in control of all this. That's what God wants Daniel to see, that God was in control of this. Patient endurance would continue to be the order of the day until God intervened to set up his kingdom. No matter how bad things may get right here for us, the church, God is still in control. And he's got a glorious end in mind. Which brings us to some importance for us today. First, the oppositions we face are not mere hiccups to our plans, but are an ongoing reality of our life in this fallen world. Again, there's no short seasons of hardship. There's just one after another challenges because we grow in our faith that way. And then secondly, God is in control of these ongoing struggles. We just be constantly reminded of that. We get to verse 21 through 35. We see that there are seasons of more intense hardships. About the first 15 verses, we saw the reigns of seven kings of the Seleucid dynasty, which opened the north. But the next 15 verses focus on the reign of one of those kings, And this guy's name is Antiochus Epiphanes. and He would go down in history as one of the most cruel, ruthless kings in history, especially toward God's people, one of. He would be the Antichrist of the Old Testament. It's kind of what he would be considered. So here, Gabriel spends 15 verses just showing Daniel what's gonna happen just with this one king. And we should... Take note about this, because what he did is horrific and could show us that this could all happen again. Well, here in verse 21, it picks up of Daniel chapter 11. It says, In his place shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of covenant. So, here we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, a contemptible person. Um, he would steal the throne from his nephew, which meant he didn't have the right royal line, which the scripture refers to here. It talks about the armies being utterly destroyed and swept away, even the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant here refers to uh, the priest in Israel called Onias III. He was killed and replaced with an ungodly priest that Antio- Antiochus Epiphanes kind of appointed talks about from that time, alliances would happen. It would make him act deceitfully. He would become strong with, a, with just a small amount of people. He would grow in his power. So see, first here, are seasons of more intense hardship because there are contemptible people. We're all sinners. We've established that, right? But then there just seems like there's some people who are leaders who are just more contemptible. Hitler, Stalin. Right there's just linen. There's just people in the history of the world that just seem more contemptible, who are greedy, who are lustful for power, and it's just never enough. You know, no matter what they get, it's just not enough. Like some call it, say it like this: that there's some people who just want to watch the world burn. Right? There's those contemptible people, and that just happens because um, Satan is real. So. These these people come and sometimes, number two, and you notice the most evil can appear as nice at first, right? That's kind of the way Anticus's Epiphanes would start off. Chapters twenty, I mean, chapter eleven, verse twenty-three and twenty-four talks about he did what his fathers could not do. He won over the the hearts of his people because he gave them money. A government program that gave people money. Maybe that'll make you like the government, right? Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it, right? <laughs> Well, what he found is that, you know, it worked. That if you give people money, they'll like you. And that's what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. He bought their trust. He bought their favor. Well, 2 Corinthians 11 reminds us even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because it looks good doesn't mean what? It is good. That was the case with him. So, We get this generous, seemingly generous, but very ruthless leader. Picking up verse 25, he'll stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. So Antiochus is up north. He's part of the, the Seleucid coming south to the Ptolemy. The king of the south will wage war with an exceedingly great mighty army, but he will not stand. For plots will be devised against him. Even those who eat his food will break him. His army shall be swept away and many will fall down slain. So he had this major battle between Antiochus of the north and King Ptolemy VI of the south. And Antiochus Epiphanes wins devastatingly. And so it makes Antiochus Epiphanes kind of ruling here in the land of Israel during this historical period. So let me just talk about this, because this paints a picture of when you talk about the fourth kingdom, the Romans, and then the end times kind of sets a, a stage for this season of intense persecution by the Antichrist towards God's people. And Tychus Epiphanes, some of you may have read about him before. How many of you have heard of this guy before? Just raise your hand. If you've been around Bible studies some, you have going to hear, hear this guy. So in the mid-100s BC is when he rules. He's brutal. He uh, comes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he, grows, he just hates the Jewish people. He wants to get rid of them. And so he raises an army of 60,000 soldiers. And they come in and they take over the temple. Um, they, they kill some of the priests. They take all of the holy artifacts out of the temple. And instead, they puts up like an altar to Zeus and things like that. Sacrifice a pig, which is a, an abominable animal for his uncleanness to the, to the Jewish people. Just makes a mockery of the temple. Well, this enrages some of the people. There's this one guy named Mattathias Maccabees he's a priest and he will not bow down he will not worship Zeus he will not recant and so he's punished for that he's not killed but he's punished but then there's this other priest who's Jewish who does capitulate and so he bows down and honors Zeus so Mattathias kills this priest you know and um, says you're not you're not true to God you don't have no right to be a priest you shouldn't live so he kills him well, Mattathias has five sons. He has five boys. They all kind of team up with dad. And so they, they join this movement of dad and, um, to, to bring you know, some kind of revolt or some kind of solution to this. Their names are John, Simon, Judah, Eliezer, and Jonathan. And they go around and start recruiting other godly men. And this team becomes known as the Maccabees. And the Maccabees means the hammer. That's what it means. So what does a hammer do? Smashes things, right? So they, re- they raise this little army. They had an army of 7,000. So finally, they're ready, and they begin to attack the 60,000 Greek army. And they win. They drive Antiochus Epiphanes out, and they reclaim the temple, and uh, just an amazing, miraculous event. So they have this huge festival when they're able to reclaim the temple, and they have this festival where they bring the lights of the menorah back into the temple, celebrating God reclaiming the temple, which is what Hanukkah today commemorates. If you heard of the Jewish holiday Hanukkah, that's what it commemorates. It was this amazing time in history when God's people were overwhelmingly outnumbered, but the night before battle, they prayed, they consecrated themselves, and they asked for God's favor as they attacked this seemingly insurmountable army and this ruthless, wicked leader named Antiochus, Epiphanes, who had done atrocious things to their people, and they won. Well, that was a, a big momentum builder for the Jewish people. So they started celebrating Hanukkah as a result. And all of this is talked about here in Daniel chapter 11. All these details, so far, 135 prophecies literally fulfilled. And then we get to this last section as we get to Daniel. Um, chapter 11, verses 36 um, through the end. And this is number three in your notes, which is God does his greatest work in the worst of times. Does his greatest work in the worst of times. So verse 36, there's a transition. It goes from talking about the events of the Greek king to now we're going to be looking at um, a time change. Verse 35 says... Um, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed times. So there's a change there. So verse 36 picks up, and then the king shall do as he wills. So it's a new king. Now, there's a lot of speculation on who 36 in the chapter is talking about. Three major interpretations. Number one is to talk about the Antichrist of the end, right? So, um, you know, if you've read Left Behind books or studied that, that theology and seeing a lot of scripture in the New Testament, about the Antichrist at the end, some believe this is who this is about. Others believe that this is talking about the fourth empire, Rome, right, which would come in, which fits other visions too. And especially this guy named Augustus Caesar, who was the first Roman Caesar to call himself God. So he would do as he willed. And then there's a third minority view that says it's the Herod's. But regardless of this, where you land on that, right? We're going to see some key principles here for us. As this looks from Daniel's perspective to the future, we see first, even in the worst of times, God is still in control. So, Gabriel points, pick, you know, through Antiochus Epiphanes, paints a portrait that things are going to be horrible. There's a story told in the, old, in the, in the Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees, which is not Bible, but it's historical, tells the story of a lady, a mother of seven children. I got seven kids. Mother of seven kids, and during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, when he made it illegal to worship God, he would bring people in and question them, give them the opportunity to recant. He brought in this mother and said, do you recant of your worship of the one true God? She says, No, I, I will not recant. There's only one God, and I will worship no other. So they brought in her oldest child. Says, if you will not recant, you will watch as we execute your oldest child. She says, I cannot recant. So she watched them execute in a graphic manner her oldest child. Then they brought in her second child. On down, all the way through all seven kids. She would not recant. Ultimately, she was executed as well. That was one of the other events that stirred up the Maccabeans in this revolt. So God painted this picture of how awful things will be, and history tells us that they were. Then he points to the future, says, but it's even going to be worse because of this contemptible, evil person. Ultimately, the Antichrist, Augustus Caesar, horrible. We see if Herod, we see Herod the Great, when Jesus is born, what does Herod the Great do in Bethlehem? He slaughters all the two-year-olds and younger, evil, contemptible, people filled with sin, serving the, the cause of Satan. But God leverages all that. So how does he do so? Well, see, even in the worst of times, God's still in control. Verse 36, we see that. Secondly, even the most powerful enemy is no match for God. We see in verse 41. You know, we see throughout Scripture, verses like Romans eight twenty-eight, which says God works all things together for the good. Of who? Those who love him, those who are the called. That's right. So his promise is only for genuine believers. But God's going to work everything ultimately for the good to make us most like Christ. So this question throughout history, right, of if God is good, God is love, God is all powerful, why does evil exist? You heard that question before? It's a good question, right? It's called, a, it's called theodicy, the problem of God and his justice and his love. Right? Well, there's a lot of good biblical answers. But here's some of those answers. The first of all, yes, God loves us. But God is also just, and justice has to happen. But also, for us to become like Christ, one of our greatest tools that we learn in our fallen state is through tough times. I mean, when do you learn that you're not in control? When things are out of control, right? When do you learn that you're not all powerful when something happens in your life that you don't have power over? When do you realize that you're not truly independent? It's only when you realize you have to depend on someone else, namely God. It's in those moments of deep sorrow, deep hurt that we turn to God. Daniel was a man of faith. but you know why Daniel was such a man of faith? Because Daniel had a lot of suffering in his life, which threw him to God, right? Which moved him to God, which called him to trust God. And then he saw God do things that were just unexplainable in the most difficult of times. That's kind of this this third point here um, is that, you know, we see God do some of his greatest works in some of the most awful times. There's a saying all through church history says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Look right now, where's the church growing the most in the world today? It's not the United States. The church is growing the most rapidly right now in parts of Southeast Asia, parts of Central Asia, and parts of Africa, where being a Christian can get you killed. That's where the church is growing the most rapidly. Now, how many of you does that make sense? That doesn't make sense, does it? But here's why that's real. Because here in America, at least historically, it's been easy to be a believer, right? It's easy. You're not, you're not threatened. I mean, Toby prayed a great prayer earlier. Yeah, we, we gather here freely. We're not worried about being arrested or anything like that. It, it's, it's free. It's, it's, it's easy. It still is easy, comparatively speaking. But in those nations where, man, if I go get baptized and someone reports it, I could lose everything. Because there, if they own their faith, they really own their faith, right? They're all in. There's no such thing as casual Christianity. There's no such thing as in those cultures of, well, you know, I'm going to, I'll walk down an aisle and say a prayer and ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, but I'm really not going to change much, and I might go to church every now and then, but, you know, I'm still going to do my thing. That doesn't exist, In those cultures, if you're all in, you are all in. And if you're not, you're not. And there's something that is so, this is made, that we're made with, it's so attracted to us. We want something real, don't we? We're attracted to that which is real and authentic. What casual Christianity has gotten us in America is generation after generation that sees some of, quote-unquote, Christians in America, and they're not convinced it's real. They don't see how the Gospels truly change lives. But in those contexts, when it's all on the line, and then you see God do incredible things because they're all in, it's attractive. Why do the? Why did the church grow to begin with? Because people saw a dead man come out of the grave alive. That's real. They said, "I want that." So the church exploded in New Testament history and Roman history because we want what's real. One of the main themes about the entire Bible is God says, I am the Lord God. Apart from me, there is no other. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. I mean, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says in Acts 4, right? There's no other name given among men through which we must be saved only the name Jesus. Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he goes through the humbling of Christ and why Christ came and, you know, took on the, the appearance of a man, the form of a bondservant, even to the, became obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross, And says, therefore God also highly exalted him so that he is a name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he is the only real one. We want what's real. And make no mistake there's eyes watching us. And we live in a culture just going in the direction of anti-God for many reasons, but one of which is there's been a lot of viewing believers and not convinced That what we have is real. So, I just wanna, as your pastor, I just wanna encourage you. I wanna beg you, live out your faith. Pour into your faith. You struggle with some doubts, all of us do if we're honest from time to time. Lean into those, study, read, pray. God, help me in my unbelief. One of the great stories of the New Testament is when Jesus is in his travels, and he come across this 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 man, young man, who is having epileptic seizure, some kind of seizure. And he's in the middle of seizing, and it's interesting. He doesn't heal him immediately. He strikes up a conversation with his dad, and it's kind of morbidly funny. But the boy is seizing, and Jesus kind of stands there, looks at his dad, and says, "How long has he been doing this?" While he's seizing right he doesn't like stop at an emergency and then have the conversation he says, like, how long has he been doing this the dad says oh since he was a young boy <laughs> he says well do you, do you want to be made well if you have if you believe you can be made well And the dad says so profound help me in my unbelief and then Jesus heals the boy profound because that encounter was more for the dad and his doubts than it was just for the boy and his seizure. That God cares about your doubts. Jesus cares about your doubts and he wants to grow you through your doubts. So just lean into the Lord there. Let your faith be real. It's not just something you do on Sunday, then you check out Your kids are watching you. Your faith or lack of faith impacts them. Grandparents, your grandkids are watching you. Your faith or lack of faith impacts them. So just lean in. Now, here's the thing the kids got to understand that no parents are perfect, no grandparents are perfect. Just because someone's in the faith and been in the faith for decades doesn't mean they've got it all figured out. In fact, I really don't know what the last few verses, I don't know if it's the Antichrist or the Romans, Kings. I'm not sure I know which one is being prophesied about here. I just, I'm not, I couldn't tell you with certainty. But that's okay. None of us are perfect. None of us had all figured out. But there is that which in the Bible is crystal clear that we do have figured out and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is that all of us are sinners and God is perfectly holy God is all powerful he's majestic and he's got all of this in his hands but my calling your calling is to recognize that there's this huge gap between God's holiness and goodness and my sinfulness and there's nothing that I can do on my own to bridge that gap. I cannot do anything to get back into the good. Grace is a good relationship with God. I'm stuck in my spiritual death. But that God in his love, in his grace, and his mercy, sent Jesus, who is going to be prophesied about even more next week into chapter 12, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the anointed one of God that God had planned to send himself God in the flesh in the person of Jesus to live a life that I cannot live, a sinless life. So that he then is qualified to be the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice to die the death that I deserve. So that instead of me receiving the justice of God, Jesus received the justice of God for me. So that now I am free to receive the mercy the grace of God everlasting life forgiveness of sin and this gospel this Holy Spirit within me who continues to change me the rest of my life that's the good news and that is so crystal clear in the scriptures amen we might disagree on end time stuff that's okay but the gospel is so clear we must agree on that. So have you encountered this Jesus? Have you encountered this one who holds all things together? Have you encountered the sovereign, almighty God who yet loves you so intimately and personally? And if so, have you trusted your broken life and your fractured future, your unsure future to him who holds all of it in his hand? Encourage you to live your life out in faith. But if you don't have that faith yet, this morning, place your faith and trust in Jesus. Because no matter how powerful or wealthy you are apart from Christ, your season will end. If you try to do anything apart from Christ, it's gonna come to an end. You might be here today and you're in a great season. You're making money hand over fist. Everything you do is just working great. You're getting your your car's paid off, your house paid off, you're building up your 401k, things are awesome. Don't be deceived into trusting all that because that too could end. Trust in Christ because he's the only one that never ends. Let's all stand and pray together.